Hello and welcome to Live True. My name is Drea Dalzell and this is my podcast where I talk about being a wife, a mother, and an overall human being. Welcome back everybody. I'm so excited. I have my very first guest um, with us today on Live True and it is my soon-to-be future sister-in-law, Felicia, and a little tiny background on her. She is an RN and we have the same view Well, I shouldn't say the same view, but we have similar views on a very, very important topic that hits very close to home for both of us um, that we're going to share a little bit about today. But before we do that, I'm going to introduce you to our lovely guest and let her give you a little bit about herself. Hello, Felicia. Hi, my name's Felicia. I think that Dre and I share the same humanistic views about everything. Uh, we approach it with a human human kind of touch um, because that's kind of lacking in today's world. I, as Drea said, I am an RN. Um, I have been in healthcare for a long time, personally and then professionally as well. I have three kids of my own here on earth, one little boy in heaven. And then I also have a bonus kiddo, uh, my fiance's daughter, which is Drea's niece. And um, I started off on the East Coast in Philadelphia, um, which in relation to this podcast is ironically uh, home to one of the, I think the largest open air drug market in the US. Um, I'm also the child of parents who have struggled with addiction and substance use. Um, And then I've personally been in relationships with people that struggle with substance abuse. Um, And professionally, obviously, I've been exposed to it a lot. Professionally, I am an RN. I currently work in telemedicine. I've also worked in uh, the progressive care unit, so an acute care unit on a local community hospital. Um, I've been a case manager for hospice care. Um, And then I kind of did some independent work there as an RN for uh, the beginning of my career. Um, Currently, I'm just kind of looking to use um, any platform possible to spread that humanistic view and also to kind of take it more from a professional approach uh, mixed with a little bit of my experience. Wonderful. And I think that's the perfect mixture because I'm all passion driven. Yes, I have my own experience. This hits very close to home for me. Um, but sometimes I can have the, the blinders on and hit it head on from an emotional, personal experience. And I love that you have that human aspect that you bring with the education, the, the knowledge, the, the professional experience um, if you will. So tell us, Felicia, why did you become a nurse? Why is this your passion? Why, why nursing? Sure. So um, my mother was chronically ill. She passed away at the young age of 44 in 2016. Actually, uh, Saturday will be six years since she's been gone. So she was chronically ill from as long, as young as I can remember, um, probably officially diagnosed when my little brother was born. So I was about, uh, I think, two or three years old at that point. Um, So my whole life, I had kind of been seeing, you know, how chronic illness affects people, affects their families, and then how it affects, you know, a person's walk of life. And uh, being, you know, 
alongside my mom for that entire journey, you know, up to and including being taken away from her because she was unable to cope with things like chronic illness and substance abuse. I kind of learned to be very empathetic at a young age and um, pair that with my love for science and I'm kind of a major geek undercover. Um, it kind of really aligned with what I had always wanted for myself. I started college in 11th grade at uh, Montgomery County Community College, which was a local community college in my hometown. Um, and from there, I just kind of continued to build on my education uh, with that end goal of always being a nurse. Now, it was not a linear path. I did not go in your traditional four years away at school. I started off um, in a university, Philadelphia University. I left there and then uh, became a mother. And in between, I was taking care of my mom. Um, so really, I had just been guided by one, an inner knowing that that's what I always wanted to do. And two, I had so much experience just from being, you know, at my, all of my mom's doctor's appointments. Um, so I think it just kind of led me there naturally. And uh, I am a nurturer, you know, that's one of my favorite things about being a mother. Um, and so that's kind of how I ended up down that path. What a gift. What a gift to be able to now share that knowledge, passion um, with others. And lucky for me, um, I always get to, um, you know, Felicia will gladly slap me with some statistics and some factual information. Like I said, I'm the passion driven kind. So I really wanted to have this discussion um, with that factual piece. And what we're going to talk about today is um, uh, harm reduction plan. And right now is a kind of a buzz topic, if you will, um, as far as the Biden administration goes, really pushing forward for this harm reduction plan. And there has been a lot of talk um, with just misunderstanding, um, misinformation about what harm reduction actually is. And um, I think there's a lot of uh, these headlines, these headline buzzwords. I think Felicia and I were talking about it earlier where, you know, somebody sees giving out free crack pipes and they, they latch on to that as this is a preposterous idea. Why would, why would we, why would he give the drug addicts drugs? Why would we give them the opportunity to do drugs? And really where my mind comes in is drug addicts are going to do drugs no matter where it is. Okay. We have to look at, stop looking at this as a um, well, really reframing the topic or, or excuse me, the verbiage of addicts. These are human beings. These are human beings who are suffering with likely mental illness. They're suffering in their disease of addiction, um, likely suffering with so much trauma in their lifetime. Um, and, and we really need to get down to that human level of what addiction really is and removing that stigma. So, um, Really quick, um, as a brief little, you know, blip of what harm reduction is kind of at a broad scope um, from the um, basic description, um, it is harm reduction is a proactive and evidence-based approach to reduce the negative personal public health impacts of behavior associated with alcohol and other substance use at both the individual and community levels. And that is coming from the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. Um, and, and why this is so important as a different sort of 
revolutionary approach to addiction and recovery is it's focusing instead of the punishment of somebody's symptom of their disease and pushing more towards the prevention, treatment, and recovering recovery where individuals have the opportunity and empowerment to set their own goals. And it's an approach of meeting people where they're at in their disease and on their own terms and speaking from the perspective of an alcoholic, of an addict. I, I will say it a million times. You don't meet many, you don't meet many sober people who have gotten sober because they were forced into it. Um, and if you do, you will hear the story of relapse. You will hear the story of it got worse before it got better because until somebody is ready to make that commitment on their own, um, you're basically fighting an, 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 an unwinnable battle. So tell me a little from your perspective, Felicia, what, what harm reduction means to you, why you are, you know, kind of a champion of this plan. Um, and, and let us in on a little insight from your perspective. Sure. So basically my outlook on harm reduction and on substance use and abuse is this. If you have two scenarios, one is, you know, has completely unsafe outcomes, no matter which way you look at it, which is, you know, just uh, in its raw nature, drug addiction and everything that goes along with it. Or you have this other side where you can, you know, we know people are still going to look for ways to self-medicate, self-soothe. That's a survival mechanism inherently built into being a human being. So if we can take that, you know, knowing that these people are still going to try and cover up their pain or, or mask their pain or, you know, lull their pain, if we can make that a little safer, then why wouldn't we? So uh, personally, um, I have a lot of experience, you know, secondary to addiction. I have, you know, had my own experiences with experimentation, with binges. So, you know, I kind of have that perspective as well, how, how quickly you can get thrown into the, to the mix of it all. And I think that when you have the tools, um, you know, to realize, okay, obviously this is safe in my logical mind, this is very unsafe, but in my, my active using in my active using mind, you know, this is not going to make any sense at all. But I do know that if I have the choice to use a clean needle or a clean mouthpiece or a non-broken piece of glass on my lips, that's going to reduce some, some things that, you know, could cause harm to me, like sharing, um, sharing used needles with other people increases your risk of hep B, hep C, any kind of bloodborne illness. Um, sharing a mouthpiece that might be broken, one, exposes you to all those same um, illnesses, bloodborne pathogens, also respiratory pathogens. And not only that, but then you now have an open wound on your mouth. If you get cut, that could also create a whole other thing like sepsis, something like that. So when you have those tools available to you to make better choices, even if you're in a, in a, you know, in using active using state of mind, then that's going to improve your outcomes, even if in the slightest better than having absolutely nothing in place. So um, personally, uh, probably about uh, 2017, I was driving to the dollar store with my kids because they love to go there. And uh, I went through this one part of my hometown. And on the way back, I was like, oh, you know, I think I'm going to go the other way. Like sometimes I like to take the scenic route. And I don't know other than divine intervention what led me to do that. But I said, you know what, girls, we're going to go home this way versus the way that I had traveled like every single time in the past. 
So we started going down uh, Main Street in Narstown, Pennsylvania, which, you know, is also also struggles with things like poverty, crime, you know, in comparison to the more sub other suburban areas. So we were driving down the Main Street right in front of the U-Haul. And I saw I was I saw someone face down and all I saw was purple near like the genital and buttocks area. So I was like, oh, my gosh, my first thought was like, oh, my God, it's a woman. She was just raped like she was violated, something like that. And I thought it was an African-American person because they were so dark and and it was becoming nightfall. So I pulled over immediately. I wanted to help that person regardless. I locked my kids in the car to make sure that they were safe. And then I went over to the person and it was actually a, a white man who was face down uh, with his blue boxers hanging, I'm sorry, purple boxers hanging out. And he was purple because he was lifeless. He was OD and he had, um, he had a SEPTA bus map in his hand. And in the other hand, he had uh, like a handful of baggies, drug baggies, heroin baggies. And immediately I called 911. So I started doing compressions, obviously. It was just me and my kids were young. They didn't know how to help or what to do. They were just kind of watching it all. And so um, I had done compressions for about, I would say a good eight minutes. And then another, another couple actually arrived. Um, they're also black and uh, both of them were and the guy was huge. I was like, can you please help me? It's like little old me. I was like 125 pounds at the time. Like, can you please help me? I'm really exhausted. And he was like, no, I'm not touching that. Like, I'm not, I'm not getting involved. And I was just like, oh gosh. So obviously the fighter and the nurse inside of me just kept going compression after compression. And then his wife proceeds to take out her, her phone and starts recording what I was doing. So that, you know, that is ingrained in my mind. It's ingrained in my kid's mind. Not only that, it took a significant amount of time. I'd say five minutes, which in life or death situations, um, you know, for the ER to, I'm sorry, for the 911 and paramedics to come on scene. That's a long time when you're mm -hmm. considering, you know, someone living or not living. So um, when they flipped him over, because I, I had him on his back and they flipped him over to kind of just like pat his back he some dirty needles fell out of his pocket and that was like literally right where my whole body was hovering over and they were like kind of they were almost mad at me like why would you help him you know he's got these needles out you don't know what you know what he's on you don't know if it's powderized if you're going to pick it up and at that point I'm just like okay when you're seeing someone else down and you know out literally out cold that's not what you're thinking unless, you know, you're, I guess, more cautious, but that's not in my blood to think that way. So I have that perspective. I also have the perspective that um, I was in a relationship with several addicts, um, you know, being the child of an addict, it does kind of set you up for some codependency issues. And, you know, you'll go after people, not go after, but you will seek people uh, that kind of are the same type of people or personalities that you were exposed to in your your family of origin and so naturally i went for um, people that were kind of emotionally unavailable that struggled with substances and so i had my own almost like addiction to codependency and um, with that i you know obviously exposed myself to a couple uh, a couple of substances that are not good for you or for anyone and I also witnessed them go, you know, even harder, um, mainly heroin. Um, 
And my, when I moved out of my house in Philadelphia, you know, I had my shed in the backyard and my ex at the time, you know, he used it to work out of and stuff. And when we went to move out, um, I had to clean out all of my mom's stuff that she like hoarded over the years, uh, all of my stuff, all of my kids stuff. And I had to move out like a bunch of uh, cabinetry. And in that cabinetry, I found hundreds, I mean, hundreds, and I'm not exaggerating, I wish I was, of used needles. Um, you could tell many of them had been used more than once. They still had blood in them. Like it was a mess. There were baggies of, of you know, old, um, they call them stamps. It's like a waxed paper that holds the heroin inside of it. I found all of that when I was moving out and though probably four, three or four years had passed, it still was like the same gut punch. Like, oh my gosh, like to know that someone didn't have clean syringes available. So they're just putting themselves at, at risk for infection of any kind of pre-existing wound or, you know, that repeated hitting that same vein with that same dirty needle. Like it just, it, I, I cannot unsee or unfeel those things that I experienced that day. I remember calling my fiance and just being like, oh my gosh, like my kids played in here. And so when I think of harm reduction, I think of the possibility that if there was a safe needle exposure program, if there was less stigma surrounding addiction, if we made it a safer space for the addicts to do what they're going to do, whether you approve or not, then this could have been something that maybe I, I didn't see, maybe my kids weren't exposed to. You know, so it's very, when I say it's very personal on that level, that's how I'm communicating that because of those experiences where I was exposed to, you know, that could have been my finger getting pricked. I could have contracted something if he had something. And if you take that and you apply it on a larger scale, like say a child at the park, I mean, Philadelphia, like I said, is the most, uh, is one of the largest, I, I literally think it's the largest open air drug market in the US. Kensington, Philadelphia is littered. I mean, it is like a sea of syringes and, and needles. And when I say that, I am not exaggerating by any means. There are Instagram sites where people, you know, post footage of that. You know, while I don't agree with that, it does expose, it gives you exposure to what's actually happening. So if you have all of that, you know, and your kids are exposed to it, that's, that's a chance that they could get infected with a dirty needle. Kids, they learn by putting things in their mouth. That is how all children learn at, from a young age up until a certain point and then even beyond that. So when I think of harm reduction on a larger scale, I think of that like, okay, if we have safe needle exposure places for these dirty needles, are all of them gonna make it into that you know, that disposal program, probably not, but are a majority of them? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And are those sites going to provide uh, clean needles versus le leaving these people out like they don't matter just because they have a mental, mental illness? So that's where I come from with my personal outlook on harm reduction. And then obviously the professional outlook is why would I ever want someone to be exposed to those bloodborne illnesses? Why would I ever want someone to be walking the streets completely septic, no health insurance, you know, no resources when they could have, they could have avoided sepsis by using a clean needle. Yes. Yep. And you know, you, you went through the whole gamut of reasons why 
this program is so important. You know, you talked multiple times about the spread of infectious, infectious diseases, you know, those bloodborne illnesses, um, huge. Um, we're talking about um, overdose prevention. You know, think about the people who shoot up that time. They think they're just going to get a good fix. And that's the last thing that ever happens, the last action they ever take. Um, you know, this is it also related to other deaths, deaths um, among people who use substances, including alcohol, which we're going to come back to that, hopefully, if we have some time. Um, reducing the sharing of substance equipment, we're talking needles, we're talking mouthpieces, you know, improving overall physical health. Now, I know when you say that and people with this stigma around addiction, thinking physical health and an addict, what does it matter? It does matter. And I think that's the biggest part here that you have brought, you know, you've made a point multiple times as we are talking about human life. We are not talking about trash that somebody is discarding and throwing away the scum of which I feel a lot of people that's what that stigma about around addiction is is it's making painting this picture of the addict who lives in a crack house you know in a in a poor part of town um, who has no value to society when in reality that is a human being who may have children who has loved ones who are caring for them who have no idea where they are and are hoping they make it to the next day um, these are real lives that we are talking about and the other part that you mentioned you know you talk about it you know not just for those who are in the throes of addiction themselves but the secondhand piece you know you mentioned being at a park you know the number one thing that i think of is public restrooms, okay? You walk into a restroom because your child needs to change their diaper. What are you gonna do? You're gonna pull down the little Koala Care diaper, pail, diaper um, tray and change their diaper, right? What do you think those are used for in a lot of cases? You know, if, if you're not experienced in, you know, in with anybody that you know that suffers from addiction or uses um, any of these substances, you're probably not thinking that somebody is going into one of those bathrooms using that as a little table here to get their next fix. It's everywhere. I know you may think that it doesn't affect you if you don't know anybody personally or you don't personally have an issue, but if you broaden that perspective, it really is everywhere. Everyone in some shape or form is affected by addiction. Sorry, didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. No, I'm just, I'm in agreement. I'm saying absolutely. I mean, every single human that walks this earth has in some way, shape or form been affected, whether it's small or big by addiction and, you know, the mental illness behind it. You know, I, I watched a movie last night. It's actually currently on, on Hulu and it's, it's, more, it's a documentary. Um, and it's called Jacinta, and it's this young woman who, um, she was raised by her mother, who is an active addict, um, active in just, and I hate to say it this way, because oftentimes when you have an addict, you're going to have a criminal history that's trailing far behind you, because that's what the disease does for you, right? Look at me, I'm a, I'm a three, <laughs> three strikes and you're out, you know, send her off to prison, um, she's a menace to society, right? So in this movie, um, it talks about the, the generational trauma that is 
most often, if not always tied to addiction. Felicia, you talked about this in your own personal story um, and your, your own personal experiences, but I think that's the other part of this that we leave out. We look at addiction as the current state of where somebody is in their disease right now. So that person who is using, reusing dirty needles and doesn't, you know, doesn't have a job, doesn't, can't, can't, you know, uh, be productive to society. That's what we think about, right? In our brains when we're thinking, you know, this program. But, but in reality, what we need to be focusing, focusing on is how the heck did, did we get there? right? Um, like I said, generational trauma, okay? Many times our, our family lines are, are taking us down a path where we're not provided with emotional, social tools we need to be healthy, um, healthy human beings that can communicate effectively. Um, and you mentioned it several times where it talks about self-soothing, you know, being able to numb those pieces. If we are given proper tools to be able to handle our humanness, how can we sit here and judge somebody who was never given an opportunity, right? So when I think about this program, I think about bringing that humanness back to somebody who's out on the streets who, believe it or not, even though there are some people out there who want to be actively in their disease, there is a much larger number of people who keep saying, why do I keep doing this? Why is this my life? Why can't I stop? I don't want to be like this anymore. I don't want to live this life. I don't want to feel this way anymore. And that is the part of me that aches and wants to reach out and open my arms and say, I am going to help in any way that I can. You know, we, we focus often so much on the the symptom of the disease. So the active addiction itself, the using of the substances. Now, if we take a step back and we start focusing more on the root of addiction, what is your thought on that? Sure. So I, I talk about this with my uh, stepmom who actually isn't exactly my stepmom by relation very often because, um, you know, when you're exposed to a lot of trauma as a child, you get this like sick, dark sense of humor. And I certainly have that. And I joke around with her all the time and excuse this language. It may be offensive for some, but I say it because I've literally walked through many aspects of life with kind of this substance abuse near me or above me. Um, and I say to her every time, like, I don't know how I didn't turn out to be a raging drug addict. Like, if statistics are correct, I should be out there in those streets of Kensington. I should be out there, you know, my kids should be with my parents. I should be out there running the streets and, you know, shooting, shooting up heroin. I should be drinking till, you know, I'm obliterated. Like I should so be one of those people. If you take a look at how my life went, you know, trauma is so underestimated and it's, in its tracks and how it how it leads people to behave like as humans obviously we're constantly learning and, and we're curious and we're exposed to all different things which that adversity helps you overcome a lot right but once you get to a certain threshold it's like okay my brain is now is physically mapped out because of these you know intense unsafe uh situations and experiences 
And now my actions every day hereafter are going to reflect all of that pain, struggle, you know, trauma, abuse, whatever it is that, that causes a person to behave such that they want to use substances to mask all of those experiences. Like we have to consider all of that. And, and some people have like no trauma and they're just like, well, I was just kind of spoiled my whole life. And when I didn't get my way, I started acting out. And this is one way that I acted out. Right. So that is still a trauma of its own kind. So we always have to go back to the root of the problem to solve anything past that point. And it's especially true with addiction, with overdosing, with any mental illness, you know, because people aren't just like born addicts, right? They're not just created to be addicts. They are created to have personalities that might make them, you know, more likely to become an addict, me being that example. Um, you know, they're create they're they go under, they undergo conditioning to, you know, make their brains think in a way that is impulsive, which is the nature of addiction. It's, it's like an obsessive compulsive disorder. You get that desire to make everything go away and that compulsion to use, and then you do it and then you're an addict. And, you know, not everyone has that, that biological makeup, but even for people that don't have it, they still end up in, in the hell of addiction. So, you know, we really have to, as a society, on an individual level, starting with your kids, you know, talking to them about, uh, we have to talk to them about, you know, humanity, like at the base of all of this, whether you're an addict, whether you have a pornography addiction, you know, whether it's a substance, whether you have a personality that kind of makes you stuck in a rut, or you're not able to get out of that, that's almost an addiction in itself. Right. We have to teach you know, from the most basic level that that's okay. You know, it is okay to have experienced those traumas, but those traumas do not need to be the reason that you don't get help for, you know, your, your disorder, that you don't get help for, um, you know, basic medical care, basic med uh, mental health care. We have to teach our kids that these people matter too, because at the end of the day, again, they are human beings. Well, and to flip that a little or, or take it a bit further, I mean, you have young children, I have young children. It's, it's learning from our experiences and using those experiences to provide to our children what we didn't have, i.e. the tools, right? So um, we, it's kind of funny because we both have very spirited children. Um, I have one in particular, you have one in particular, and, and it takes a lot of time and dedication, and it takes a lot of patience to be able to, instead of writing off an emotional display by our children, to take the time and really see what it is that is happening within them and allowing them to self-regulate in a natural, safe way at a young age. So that way, when they grow to be, you know, adults, they have tools that will reduce that need to numb because they can regulate those emotions and not feel that they're bad, that they themselves are bad because of what they're feeling, thinking, or doing, and, um, and that it's okay, that it's okay because I know as a child that was not something that was ever, you know, not a conversation I had. In fact, I remember specifically being told to stop crying, to stop being so sensitive, to stop being a baby and just shut up. You know, yeah. you don't, don't talk until you're, you're spoken to and, and behave like a good little soldier. 
and be on your way. And lo and behold, I'm stuffing and stuffing and stuffing these feelings on top of with unstable emotional parents. You know, I love my parents to all ends and they were, you know, they did what they could with the tools they had. However, what I was reading um, the other day was talking about how, you know, when we, when we suffer through childhood trauma and we have unstable parents emotionally or what have you, we become uber sensitive to the temperature of somebody else's emotions, right? Mm -hmm. So that then, you know, you grow into this adult empath, which we look at as just being overly sensitive to human emotions. But in reality, it's a trauma response. It's a trauma response because I know that if that person isn't happy, that I'm going to feel the results and the effects of their unhappiness. So I become now the peacemaker. And not only do I stuff my own feelings, but now I'm also trying to handle that person's emotions. I know you're tracking with me here because I think we've had very similar experiences. And now I'm so oversensitive to any environment because I don't zone in on the happy people. I zone in on the person in the corner who's withdrawing or the angry person over on the other corner who is about to have an explosion or myself. I'm so uber sensitive to my own anger issues that I can't separate being human from having an emotional response. So it's, it's so layered. It's so complicated in a sense, but really we make it that way because we're so afraid to stop and say, look, (laughs) this applies to all of us. We all could use better tools on how to manage life. Um, so I just, I, I, that keeps kind of coming around in my head and we were actually talking and I know we're pushing time here, but I want to talk about this one phrase because this one keeps popping out at me and there's a lot of backlash. I know you've had personal conversations with people, you know, I have as well. And there's a lot of anger towards our stance on these programs and people's opinions on what is what. And you know, the the phrase all lives matter keeps ringing through my head because here you have people who are judging something that is completely different than what we are used to in the, uh, in the way of recovery. Right. And, and we're saying, this is ridiculous. This is stupid. It's a waste that we should be directing our funds somewhere else towards homelessness towards um, creating rehab centers, you know, what have you, right? And I think to myself, if those things worked, why weren't, why isn't the money that we already fund towards those things um, decreasing the the amount of, of overdose deaths. I think it was up last year, like 29% from previous years. And, and the numbers are just, they're astronomical. We're in a place now where, where overdose deaths are, are shooting through the roof. Now, now throw on top of it a pandemic, right? Now we are talking, we're, we're, yeah. just, we're just throwing fuel to the fire, right? So I think about that phrase, all lives matter and, and, and people who want to judge this program. And I think to myself, why a phrase like that bothers me from people. It's not that I don't think all lives matter. Of course they do. 
but I'm not going to sit here and, and preach that in one political conversation, yet turn around and say, start, start judging people by the label of addict, trash to society, right? Absolutely. I want to know that I did everything in my power to help somebody because what happens then? A loved one dies. And then you think to yourself, I wish I would have known. I wish I could have done more. This is doing more. Absolutely. Don't you think? Absolutely. Um, I personally have experience with this also because my daughter's father, um, he passed away from an overdose. And so when I personally think of that, you know, there, there were plenty, you know, cause he had existing mental health issues and, you know, our relationship was very tumultuous, but at the end of it all, I always maintained a good heart whenever my boundaries supported that. So if he was in one of his spirals and I, you know, I needed to back off and, and make sure he wasn't really in contact with my daughter because he was just not helping himself, you know, outside of using drugs, like just not, he was not safe, you know, to engage with, then I had to do that. But I always made sure, and I still make sure that I put him in a light that is humanistic, you know, like when he passed away, I wasn't like, oh, your dad died because you know, he is a raging drug addict. Absolutely not. I said he was sick. Like he is, yes. you know, daddy had a problem and he was unhealthy and that's okay. You know, it's okay to be that way, but we have to make sure that we show everyone like that as much love as we can, because they don't have a lot of love for themselves. Yes. And when we talk about removing that stigma around addiction in general, I think that's the biggest thing. It's you know, we can't just judge something based off of our own personal experience and comfort zone. Um, that's, that's really the biggest piece of the puzzle for me is when I sat in prison, I, I was around a community of, of women from all walks of life, a lot of addiction, okay, a lot of, a lot of trauma. And when you get to know somebody who was the drug dealer, who was, you know, doing damage on the corner and, and funny story that one, my, my cellmate likely stole my bike off of my patio, <laughs> come to find out. But when I got to know her as a human being, like it's a human being, you know, it's a mother, it's a mother doing what she has to do to survive. And, and I know that most people say, well, I choose to work my, you know, work my butt off so that I can provide food and shelter. Well, that's great if you have been provided that example or those tools. But what I always go back to is I was surrounded by many women who were never shown a proper example of what healthy hustling looks like, meaning working three jobs so that you can provide a roof over the head and food on the table. Um, when all you know is a generation after generation of, of drugs and, um, and mental illness without, without resources for, um, you know, intervention of any sort, how can you expect somebody to make a quote unquote right choice? And I think this is where it comes down to removing that stigma of, of it being just so bad and, and bringing that human aspect to it so we can start treating people as human beings and seeing what the root of this issue actually is and start breaking those barriers. So Absolutely. I don't know. I'm just mumbling now because my heart goes to that soft space where I just, I wanna help. And I know you're there too. 
And, and we've talked about this, you know, <laughs> the last few days, just nonstop, because I think we're both in that place of like, I could, I could never say something about a human being that, um, that would judge them for something that I have no experience with, or even if I do, you know, Absolutely. even if I do, um, yeah. I don't know. So any other last thoughts that you have on, on this topic? I think we've kind of <laughs> hit the, the, the main points that we wanted to, but anything else on your heart that you wanted to share? Absolutely. So mainly I just, uh, you know, whenever I speak out about these types of things on my social media or anything, it's because, you know, I, obviously I like to play fun and I like to have a play on words from time to time. I have a very comical approach to life. As I said, it was probably a coping mechanism for the trauma, but <laughs> I just want to bring awareness I, in whatever way I can. I want to bring awareness to all of this, you know, like I put on my social media, you know, I joke saying Joey B, you know, the Biden administration, I'm not political like that at all, but I just kind of play into that, that silly lighthearted approach in order to, to kind of segue what I'm really saying. Like, I'm not saying this is political at all. I'm saying actually that it should not be political. Should there be policies to support safe, you know, uh, harm reduction models? Absolutely. But am I saying that you need to get your panties up in a bunch because it's been created under the Biden administration? Absolutely not. That is like, I do not care about politics in the least in that sense. But what I am saying is you need to look back, you need to look past the headlines of, oh, crack pipe this, crack pipe that. Like, first of all, if it was the government, you know, going to be providing clean crack smoking devices, that is their prerogative. That actually does in itself have benefits. You're not having people, someone, an addict actually, believe it or not, I was completely floored by this. An addict reached out to me and said, have you ever heard of a, an infection coming from a crack pipe? Well, yes, actually. I've, I've heard of hep B coming from eating at a restaurant with poor hygiene practices. Right. So absolutely, if you're putting it to your mouth, your, or, your oral, you know, your mucosa, all of that, you can still contract those same diseases. Right. It's just as dangerous. Not only that, but like I said, you could cut your lip. So if that's going to be part of their plan and they can justify it with data to support that that is safer than someone using, you know, their neighbor's crack pipe that someone else shared with 15 other people on the street. I would rather the government give or make space for a clean crack pipe. It is that simple. Like it does not need to be politicized. It is, it is coming from a place of, again, humanity and with a health background, um, you know, combined with the personal experiences. So I just want to say, you know, that generational trauma of addiction and codependency and repeated addiction across the lifespan, in one family, across families, the key to bringing any type of solution to that is to increase your awareness beyond your own limited perspective, to listen to others, to have those tough conversations. Are you going to agree with everyone? Absolutely not. I mean, I would say probably five out of 10 responses that I got from my social media story were in disagreement, but they were still able to say, I understand where you're coming from. And that's all I'm asking for. You know, that, that helps to open up your awareness for this situation. 
And when that awareness is open, that's when change can happen. That's when we can create programs that are successful. Um, and my last final thing is just to say that out of all of the continents, you know, Asia, uh, North America, Africa, they kind of go beyond continents and kind of sub-label. But out of all of them, right? So the highest um, supportive reference to harm reduction in national policy documents is in what they say Eurasia. So there are 26 of those in that, in that country. Now, if you look at North America, there are two. Yeah. Two references to harm reduction in national policy documents. That yes. is insane. And when yes. you look at the effects that harm reduction strategies and models have had across uh, Western Europe, because that's kind of where it was piloted and has been more successful than not, you'll see why. It's very simple. If you have the option to do something safely versus not doing it safe and versus having a lot of risks and you know out negative outcomes, why in any way, shape or form, when you're talking about anything, whether it's addiction or, or food preparation, why would you choose the dirty, I'm not saying dirty with a negative connotation, why would you choose the unsafe way? Yep. And that's all I got. Preach, sis. <laughs> preach. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate your insight. I appreciate your um, transparency um, and willingness to share your perspective and as it you know affects you personally and professionally because it's important to hear it from both sides. Um, and, and I thank you for sharing your heart with us because this is such a um, sensitive um, sensitive topic. And it, it takes a lot of courage to open up about something that is often viewed as shameful um, and, and has a lot of negative, you know, feeling towards it. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for sharing. And, um, and for anybody else to, to kind of jump on what Felicia said, do your research. And, and from legitimate sources, I, I have to give her her um, credit here because she she always reminds me to go to the to the .gov sites. You know, you need to find things that are going to have are going to have factual information, um, not bias, and and not running into something with misinformation. But um, but but do your research, and and before you're you're quick to form an opinion, just just take a second and look at it from another set of eyes because. As Felicia mentioned, until we do that um, and we start looking at things at a more holistic approach, um, we're not going to make any movement towards towards a, a healthier um, nation, first of all. Um, but but healthier family family circles, our, our smaller communities, um, and the way we we are in community with one another. So. Um, thank you for joining us today. Again, thank you, Felicia, for being on today. It was my absolute pleasure to have you as my very first guest. Um, oh my God. <laughs> I always wanted to be on a podcast. <laughs> thank you so much, everybody. Until next time.